Welcome to episode 214 of the Reformed Brotherhood. I'm Jesse. And I'm Tony, and we are proud members of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. Hey, brother. Hey, brother. What's good? Lots of things, man. I mean, every time you ask me that, I'm like, I don't know, stuff. Stuff's good. <laughs> Everybody's tired of the same opening. I always go with the what's good. And you always say, listen, God's good and everything that he created. Yeah. It, it's one of those questions that's basically rhetorical, but rhetorical questions don't really yes. land. They don't really land on podcasting. Like next time you'll be like, what's good, Tony? And I'll just be like, Yeah, that's it. <laughs> <laughs> I just had this this great idea, maybe even a brilliant idea. What if instead everybody's expecting us just to do the obligatory, how are you doing? Which again, like you said, it's not really a question of your current constitutional state, but more just an acknowledgement that you're on the other end of this conversation. What if instead we just start going with asking each other random catechism questions so it was kind of like hey brother and then it was just right into uh what is the chief end of man there you go we could do that <laughs> could i love it that. well speaking of getting back into our regular rhythms so to speak we got affirmations we got denials i usually ask you which do you prefer do you want to go negative first or do you want to go positive first Let, let's start negative this time okay i can feel that i like that Go ahead. So I'm I'm denying, this is not a new denial. I'm, I'm sure we've denied something along these lines before, but I'm denying like evangelical fluffy theology. And let me, let me clarify specifically what I'm talking about. That, so, there's got to be a story here. Well, I mean, the, it, the evangelical theology is fluffy. That's the story. But I, I, I was listening to, <laughs> Fair enough. I listened to a podcast. Uh, it's the Focus on the Family marriage podcast, right? It's like 10 minutes oh. long. It's kind of general marriage advice stuff. You know, why not? Like it's, it's not bad. It's generally sound advice in my experience. So can I just say to interrupt a bit, I would have never anticipated that that'd be a podcast you listen to. I have nothing against that podcast. What brought you to that podcast? Um, Ashley listens to it and she thought that it was helpful information. So as part of like a commitment to um, seek to improve my marriage with any opportunity I have. I just listen to it. And right on. sometimes, it, you know, it's it's general advice, like um, things like get to know your spouse, get to know their triggers and make sure you avoid them. Like it's, it's kind of like all the stuff you would hear in like a marriage counseling session, not like a, like a premarital counseling session, or I suppose in a marriage counseling session, not, I don't have any experience with that, but um but it's in podcast form. So it's not anything like groundbreaking, but here's, here's where um, I don't remember the exact phrasing, but they said something along the lines of, you know, emotions are okay. And we know they're okay because God is an emotional God. And he, Ooh. he feels the whole range of emotions from disappointment all the way to Ooh. elation. And, and I'm, I'm sitting there going, Oh, come on guys. Like, and, and it's one of those things where if you hear someone, so like sometimes if you listen to like David Murray or, uh, like, um, Joel Beakey, and they kind of get into that sort of Puritan mode of talking, they use that anthropomorphic language and they really lean into it. Um, because they're, they're coming from the belief that the scripture uses this anthropomorphic language. It's communicating something true. And so we should lean into anything the scripture teaches. I'm all on board with that, but you can tell with some of these, uh, groups that like 
they don't recognize that this is anthropomorphic language and they really right. think that God is like up there disappointed with his creation and is like emoting and all this stuff. So I'm denying not necessarily the podcast because y- you run into this all over the place. And I think, um, you know, it's kind of like Paul says, if, if you were to uh, avoid the world, you'd have to come out of it. Um, I think if you're going to avoid anything that doesn't have theological problems, then go ahead and just shut off our podcast because (laughs) we have made our fair share of boneheaded statements. But I think, I think where I'm going with this in the specific denial is there are a lot of evangelical um, ministries, podcasts, Christians, you know, fill in the, fill in the noun um, who just don't understand and don't recognize in any shape or form how just dangerous and heretical the the kinds of things they actually say and believe are. Because I think these people fully believe that God is an emotional God and they're doing exactly what Paul, ironically doing exactly what Paul talks about in Romans one, where they're, they're turning, they're taking the creator and they're exchanging it for a creature. They're taking uh, rather than looking at God and saying, since we are in the image of God that teaches, as something about ourselves because of who God is, they're actually saying, well, because we're in the image of God, it teaches us something about who God is in light of how we are, which isn't necessarily a false step, but more often than not, unless you're really careful and have it tethered with some really good theology proper, you're going to, you're just going to screw that up bad. So I'm denying that all of that complex of things that I just said. Boom. Sometimes you and I surprise myself because that was like a good word. That could have been the end of this podcast right there. Like we didn't even mean necessarily to bring in like all matters of theology into like the denials, but that's so really good. And that's such a strong denial because, and also super timely. I was just having a conversation about impassibility with somebody this week and trying to explain what that is and, and drawing that line between using the anthropomorphic language to emphasize something about God while at the same time, not undermining his critical qualities that make him very different and distinct from us. Yeah. I, I used to think that was like a nuanced thing that we could sometimes wade into if we wanted to. The older I get, the more I look at this theology, the more I think it's important for us to understand that every Christian should basically come to this point of trying to understand, well, what does it mean when we say that God feels something? Right. It's worth having that discussion. So yeah. I appreciate bringing that to the forefront. Maybe there's some who are listening to this and think like, what are these guys talking about? Like, I never saw a problem with that. It can be a problem. It's not right. necessarily a problem. Like you're saying, it's in understanding how you use it and how that defines what you think God is like, it can potentially be a problem. So it's it's worth discussing. I appreciate you bringing that up again. That's really good. All right. Well, what about you? What are you denying today? All right. So this is like, my denial is focused on something that's a little bit more ephemeral. You always have like really strong, any week that I think, I'm just going to use this denial because it's kind of like, off the beaten path is the week I can count on you coming with a really strong, cogent theological (laughs) denial. It always works out great for me, but we're about to enter the holiday season. I think we have a phrase coined actually for the season, right? We do. We call it midwinter, no reason. Yes. So this midwinter, no reason holiday celebration manifested in gift giving and frivolities and all kinds of other stuff is upon us again. And my denial is because we're so far ahead of this season or just right on the cusp of it actually beginning in earnest. Here's the denial. Don't get caught up in meaningless, nonsensical drama, especially involving your family. Yes. This has been such a strange year. 
So I'm just denying against things that are not really that important. Let's not get bent out of shape. Maybe I'm speaking to myself. Let's not get bent out of shape over things that really don't matter or in two months are not going to matter whatsoever. Yeah. It's more important, I think, that we show each other grace and love in all seasons. But this one is a season, of course, the midwinter season for no reason gift giving is sometimes stressful. And I would say, especially in the year that we're having, don't worry about it. Don't stress yeah. over it. Ask yourself the question, does this really matter if you're about to go up in arms over something? And I would say probably nine times out of 10, the answer is it doesn't. So yeah. I'm just denying against like nonsensical, unreasonable, unwarranted, non-necessary drama. Yeah. Yeah. You're, you're absolutely right. If uh, gift giving and gift receiving should be a joyful thing. So if you, in the midst of your preparing for gift giving or gift receiving, uh, start start losing your joy because of how stressed yes. out you are about it. Yes. Then you probably need to take a step back and reevaluate like what's going on and why you're doing it and how you're doing it. I, I'm with you there. And maybe this is a good place for you and I and all Christians to kind of think about the fact that this idea of gift giving, at least in theory, is supposed to be in some ways a small manifestation of the gift giving that God has manifested right. in his son. If that's true, then like, I'm going to say over myself, I've been at times a horrible gift giver because I'm yeah. definitely not embodying the spirit. So I'm trying to encourage myself and everybody else. Let's get after that spirit again. Let's just try it out and see what happens. Let's cast away all of the nonsensical trappings of gift giving and all the stress that comes with it and really just come back to essential elements, which is if it's supposed to be about showing love and love in a manner that's worthy of, in some ways, the example God gave us, then why don't we try that for a season and see what happens? So I'm denying against this like just unnecessary drama. Put everything in perspective, people, and let's see if we can't get back to the heart of the issue. Yeah, I I'm with you there. I think I think you're spot on. So that was pretty good, actually, for negativity. Like, I yeah. feel like we we have like some redeeming characteristics in all the things that we talked about. So let's go full positive. What are you affirming? So I'm affirming a new podcast. Um, the podcast is by an old podcaster. Not that he's old, but he's a seasoned podcaster. What? And is this what I think it is? It, it probably is. This is a podcast by the one, the only, the godfather of uh, reformed <laughs> podcasting. Les Lanfear, and it's called Gospel Riot. And so for those of you who know Les, um, he sort of disappeared for a while when he was making his movies. Um, the pubcast went off the air. Uh, you know, the people in the Reform Pub admin group, we just didn't really like hear from him that often. He was just a busy guy. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, I get an invitation from Les to join a Facebook group called Gospel Riot. And I don't I, I this was right when I was deciding to leave Facebook. So I joined it, looked around for a minute and then I left. I had no idea that this was a new podcast. And then out of nowhere in the Society of Reform Podcasters chat group, they're like, have you guys heard Les's new podcast? And I was like, Les has a new podcast. So I'm saying all of that to say Les has a new podcast and it's awesome. So make sure you check it out. It's called Gospel Riot. Um, it's just getting off the ground. He's got four episodes. He's got it, it's mostly an interview format, but it's specifically oriented around getting people engaged in evangelism. So he's got an episode where he talks about the creator creature distinction with James White, which is basically kind of like, let's get our head around who this God is that we're evangelizing for. Um, nice. He did an episode with uh, one of the pastors he interviewed for uh, Spirit and Truth named Neil Stewart about the nature of sin and the nature of man. He did an apologetics essay with Saiten Bruggenkate. And this most recent one, which I'm actually going to reference a little bit tonight, 
he did an episode with Mark Jones on Christology, basically. And so, again, it was one of those kind of episodes where it was, uh, who is this Jesus that we're, we're preaching about? Right. And so it, it's it's not your typical evangelism podcast that's all about techniques and tactics and methods. He talks about those kinds of things, but it's it's really more, at least so far, about kind of like, what is the underlying theology of evangelism and how do we motivate each other and equip each other as the church to go out and share the gospel? So check it out. It's called Gospel Right. It's phenomenal. I, I really enjoy it. Um, unless it's Less is such a um, an example for reform podcasters, just in terms of how he has built what he's built and how he's done what he's done. Um, you know, we've said it before: our show and most shows like ours are basically just derivative shows from the reform podcast back in the day. Um, there was, you know, White Horse Inn and Renewing Your Mind. There was kind of there was kind of like the radio show turned into a podcast, and then there was like the sermon feed podcast. Les really has one of the first shows that I remember that was really just two regular guys talking about theology. Um, and it spawned kind of what is reformed podcasting now. So check it out. It's great. Gospel riot. Um, I can't recommend it enough. That's a great name. It is. It's a great name. And it's kind of, the idea is kind of like, if we're going to, you know, he's kind of, it's funny because I think he actually didn't, he picked this name before like the, the year of rioting, which we've had. So I don't think that he was planning on like keying into this sort of zeitgeist that's happening in our culture right now where there's riots happening all over the place, but it kind of works to sort of be like, well, people are rioting all over the place, but who's rioting for the gospel. And that's right. kind of what he's motivating us, trying to motivate us to with this, this project is why aren't we exercised and jazzed up and out there rioting for the gospel, the way that people are rioting for other causes. I'd like to think that what happened here is that in some ways, like you said, Les's podcast, by example, the, the old reformed pub or reformed pubcast inspired us. Then we had Les on our show and then our show inspired him to do another podcast called Gospel Riot about the practical impact of theology on the way in which we talk about evangelism and evangelize with those in our sphere of influence. So I'd like to think we've come full circle. That's probably yeah. not true, but I'd like to think that. Yeah. I mean, I think it's fair to say that Les owes us everything. <laughs> <laughs> Just kidding. If you hear this, Les, we love you. We're happy to hear you back behind the mics. Uh, it's it's great to hear your voice again, brother. Yeah, it's that's great. Uh, and I mean, I have there, there's some coveting. Uh, I'm just going to disclose this to everyone. There's some coveting that's been going on in my life because he had a conversation with Mark Jones. You and I have talked about getting Mark Jones on this podcast because of how much we appreciate so much of his work that he's done, especially in the Christological sphere. So that was, I did go back and listen to, that's the only one I've really listened to some of that episode. And I was like, oh, like when I, I heard Mark Jones, I was like, Mark Jones, MJ, why do you not, why do you not come on our podcast? Yeah. Well, sub affirmation, we're going to be using, I'm going to be using it a little bit tonight, but Knowing Christ by Mark Jones, we'll just read it, read it again, read it a third time. Yeah, it will exactly. revolutionize your Christology. It's, it's yeah, so, so can we just like make that like a sub, like you said, sub affirmation? Knowing Christ, which I think we've recommended before, oh, was yeah. for me almost like a seminal work. Yeah, it, it's because like a sea it's, change. Yeah, exactly. And it's it's not just about the fact that he's, he's saying a lot of things in that work. It's not that necessarily those things are new. It's the way in which he's distilling them down mm -hmm. and basically making them like these essential matters which are readable in a very slender volume. It's not that big a book. And yet you can read this book. How many pages is that thing? You have it in front of you. Yeah. Um, 
200? Let's see. Yeah, it's it's probably around 200. I think the best part of this book um, from a, a readability perspective is that the chapters are short and they're almost they're almost like devotionally written. Yeah, it's devotional. Um, you know, when I when I read it the first time, I've gone through it, I think, two or three times now. When I first read it, I read one chapter every Lord's Day. Uh, as kind of like my pre-Lord's Day service devotions. So I would read my scripture for the morning, and then I would read a chapter of Knowing Christ. And it just it just was like, it's hard to explain. Like, it, it's it's like a good meal. It's like a good breakfast. It gets you ready for your day. <laughs> good breakfast. What, wait, what is that good breakfast? What's a good breakfast for you? Uh, bacon and eggs, for sure. Okay, fair, uh, fair enough. Fair enough. Yeah. I totally, then I'm totally on board with you on that. I, th- That's what makes I that- fear that maybe what you heard me say is read some of this book. <laughs> And what I meant was read all of this book. <laughs> okay. I was not expecting that. That was well done. <laughs> Very well played. There's a handful of people that will get that reference. Yes. I totally agree with you. And that's why I'm kind of harping on it a bit is it's almost like you're getting a full course on Christology in this like tiny little yeah. book. It's yeah. really deep. But what he does so well is he understands theology and good theology is always a theology that you can read in bite-sized pieces and then turn around and use it and apply it to your life in a profound way. Mark Jones just does that so exceptionally. So yeah. as a man, as a preacher, as an author, I've always appreciated him. So that's why I was like, Les, come on, really? Episode four? Already you're in the Mark Jones territory? Why? Yeah. Why? Also, his kids are like Ronaldo and uh, Beckham. They're like, they're like soccer superstars if you follow them on Facebook. Yeah, they're crazy. Like his whole family is just like a very interesting Mm -hmm. group of people. That's for sure. Yeah. So Mark Jones, if you're listening to this, we know you are. It's true. Come hang out. Probably not. But you're up. What are you affirming today? I'm going to stay within this vein of reading material, which we kind of uh, appropriated in your, the sub affirmation. So this is something that I don't own, but I'm going to just also be honest and keep in this vein of coveting things. Apparently that's my jam right now on this episode. (laughs) And that is that the banner of truth. I know I'm behind on, well, I'm not behind on this. This is out there. People know it exists, but I'm just jumping in full bore into like the the ring here and mixing every considerable more metaphor I can think of (laughs) the banner of truth. Just released something that I think is long overdue. These Puritan box sets. You've seen these, right? They're so pretty. They're so handsome. But here's the thing that's great about them is finally, as opposed to like, if you just recently, the banner of truth sent me like a physical thing in the mail that was like, here's like a little flyer of things you can order. And I was like, does this, do people still do this? They still send advertisements in the mail. And the, one of the pages was, here is all the Puritan paperbacks with like a little box you can check when you read them. It was like, read them all, collect them all. And I was like, don't mind if I do. I really want to. And the beauty though, I think these particular sets is it's kind of like for anybody that's ever been introduced to the Puritans and it was like, oh my goodness, I had no idea this was amazing writing was out there, mm-hmm. but I don't know what to read. There's so much stuff. Somebody tell me what is like the best of the best. They just finally put it together. So they've got one box set that crosses over lots of Puritans and then one that they're calling just like the treasures of Owen because he wore red boots. I know. So I'm a little disappointed that the box set is not red. (laughs) I didn't even think about that. That's really, really good. (laughs) That's really good. Um, I haven't got my hands on these yet, but I just think they're beautiful. And I think it's finally about time to like create for like the layperson kind of a nice cogent, like, compartmentalized set of some of like the more essential things to read of like the Puritan writings. So I'm just affirming this. I don't think they're necessarily cheap, 
but they're also like really beautiful. And I think I'm I'm looking at what's included and man alive, would any Christian be blessed to read these things? So we don't get sponsored by the banner of truth, but we really should. Yeah. Because we've recommended so much of their stuff, but this is like free of charge for them. Like definitely go pick this up if it's within your price point. If you're a listener who has some sort of connection at the banner of truth, could you please let them know that we are open to a sponsorship deal and would love to, <laughs> they could just send us like one copy of the, the Puritan paperback collection or like the Puritan box set we just talked about. They could send like one to each of us and we'll, we will promote you on every single episode for the yes. rest of this, this podcast. Yes. And you know, what's interesting is uh, you and I've talked about this privately. There's been a couple people uh, by God's grace in this past year that Uh, God has introduced me to in the life of our church, and I've been able to recommend some of these readings. In fact, uh, this past year, I was able to lead a a Bible study that took place uh, over Zoom, and it was entitled, Looking at the Puritans, How They Understand Anxiety and Worry. And um, there were lots of people in this who had never heard of the Puritans before. So you can imagine there were not initially a lot of people in the Bible study because this, (laughs) this was not like the kind of title that automatically drew people. Here's what I was amazed about. Even the people that said like, well, I'm not really a big reader or I don't know, like theology seems like this, the purview of people that are like pastors, it seems a little bit too deep for me. Uh, so many of them on their own volition ended up picking up all the books that we were referencing and reading them for themselves and then saying to me, oh my goodness, these are such treasures. And I would yeah. say, I know, right? Like, I'm just like you. These all things kind of like they fell into my lap by God's grace and they've been so formative in my understanding of spirituality and faith and theology that I can't imagine who I am today without these writings. So I'm just glad that they created this resource. So I'm kind of saying too, I guess, like, uh, don't be ashamed. Recommend this stuff. Like I find what's interesting is like people are in some ways flocking to all of the stuff that wants to tickle their ears, the things that seem simple, the Reader's Digest version of theology. And at the same time, people are coming back to these things, which on the face would seem very complicated. And they're finding yeah. that they're great bombs to their souls, that this is the stuff that the meat, the the breakfast, like you said, they longed for all along. So yeah, let's get some Puritan action going on. And especially yeah. John Redboots Owen. Yeah. I think John Redboots Owen would be proud of our endorsement here. <laughs> uh, I'm trying to get, um, I don't know if he listens regularly. Have I told you about this? I, I don't know what you're about to tell me. Okay. So uh, maybe others can help me in this. I'm trying to get uh, the infamous Paul Cox, who is the owner proprietor of Reftoons, to make some kind of cartoon with John Owen wearing red boots. Like a big, like, this seems like his thing. Like he would be yeah, able to yeah. uh, like encapsulate this and make this like a, a funny and amazing thing. And, you know, kind of bring that into Owen's theology. I'm working on him on that. In fairness, he kind of asked me for like a reference to that. Cause of course he wants to talking about the commandments. He wants to make sure that he has fidelity to anything that he presents and draws. And so I, I have to put together some things in like uh, for references for the red boots thing, but it's, it's definitely documented, right? I mean, I, yeah, oh, I yeah. came across a reference to it. Um, I don't know if it's a super strong reference, but I don't know if you've, you have something like on the tip of your tongue. That's like, here's when he wore the boots. No, I don't have a reference to John Owen's (laughs) red boots on the tip of my tongue, Jesse. (laughs) What I would like to see is somebody, uh, somebody should get in touch with missional wear and they should make red boots with like the Peter Voth style line art (laughs) on the side. So it's like, it's like Owen boots that are red and have Owen on the side of them. That'd be pretty sweet. Why don't we just do that? We just need to do that. 
I don't have the technical knowledge or skills to do that. I, I mean, I don't want to toot our horns too much or <laughs> pet ourselves in the back, but why is it that we have so many good ideas that we just cannot execute? Because they're not really good ideas, Jesse. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if you okay. know this, but most of them are actually pretty bad ideas. <laughs> All right. Well, that explains that. So, so before, before we go on to our topic, though, I'm going to throw a wrench into the mix here. So for longtime listeners, we explained at one point what this affirm deny where this comes from so it's used all over the place it's kind of a it's used in certain kinds of confessional statements or documents um but most when i when i sort of came up with this idea i was i had in mind uh francis turretin's elenctic theology where basically like he's asked a question and he either affirms with the Roman Catholics or denies against the Lutherans or whatever it might be. But there's a third category that is near and dear to most reformed people's hearts. And that third category is we distinguish. So basically that's like, yeah, we agree, but like, let me clarify. So it might be like Luther might say, well, we affirm with the Roman Catholics that the corporeal presence of Christ is in the Eucharist. But we distinguish in that we don't believe that the substance is trans transfigured. Good example. So, I'm I'm introducing this this week. Hopefully it won't be a regular uh, entry because this segment is already too long. But <laughs> I'm using this to sort of call out something that I think is pretty cool, but I also maybe I'm not so sure about. So take it with a grain of salt. So okay. I'm distinguishing, I'm not sure whether it's against or with, but I'm distinguishing something called the emblems of the infinite kings or infinite king, excuse me, singular. And this is a podcast that Crossway produced that is like a narrative systematic theology. Um, I think it's intended for like young adults or like early teens, like 15, 16 year olds. Um, It's a systematic theology podcast where basically each episode is like they go through like an area of systematic theology. And it's like postulated in this sort of like fantasy world where like you're you have a key and when you turn the key, it opens a door to like a a world. And in that world, you learn about systematic theology. So I'm, I'm affirming it because I think it's cool. It's kind of innovative. It was, it was easy to listen to and it was for the most part accurate, but I also would deny some of the fluffy evangelical side of things. They talk about God's emotions a lot. Um, so I'm distinguishing because I want to recommend you listen to it, but not necessarily wholeheartedly. Uh, because it, it's it's interesting. It's good. It might not be bad to sort of give to like a teenager in your life who uh, is interested in theology or is new to the faith that you want to sort of introduce to the concept of thinking about some of these things. Um, but it, it it's a little bit hokey at times. Um, and some of it you, you would need to listen with them and sort of like course correct along the way a little bit. Um, so it's called Emblems of the Infinite King. As far as I know, the entire series is out. I don't know whether they're going to produce more in the future. Um, each episode is like 20 minutes long, 30 minutes long. So check it out. It's called Emblem uh, Emblems of the Infinite King. You can find it on any podcatcher that you have or want to use. Great use of a third category, because that's actually a really great example of something that you're kind of like, I recommend to some degree, but even recommend might be a, too strong a word. It's just that it's not altogether bad, but there's parts of it that I would caution you to listen to with a certain degree of discernment. So I think that's fair. Like 
maybe we need to bring that in sometimes, or at least now, since you introduce it, that gives us liberty to like kind of half affirm something or exactly. affirm something with a caution. It's That's true. fair. Like I've heard of people, lay people and pastors who have extensive libraries. And a part of that, they're well-read, they're broadly read. They'll have books that they bring in for research, but these books have opinions that they don't agree with, but they're also really worried that if somehow the Lord takes them very quickly from this life, that their loved ones, when they go through the library, will not be able to discern. Yeah. Like they'll just find this book and be like, oh, so-and-so must have agreed with this book because it's in their library. So they have like that stamp that says something yeah. like, this is heresy or, or this is nonsense. Only, yeah. yeah, for research purposes only. Do you have that thing? No, I just don't have crap in my library. <laughs> That's not true. I have a copy of Love Wins. But I, I think with most of those books like that, if you were to flip through it, you would see exactly how I felt about the book based on the stuff that I scratch in the margin margins. Oh, that's, that's so great. That was, yeah. it's almost like we try to set this up. There's no script for this podcast. No. And yet that seemed like it was entirely scripted. Yeah. Well, now that we're uh, on track to match last week's uh, 90 minute episode, yes. we should probably get into our actual topic. That's going to be our new time frame. So listen, we are no stranger to wanting to talk about Jesus on this podcast. And this episode is not unlike many others where we find ourselves wanting to talk about our Savior. And the whole topic today really comes from a couple of questions that we've received via email through time, but also just that this is kind of a perennial topic. And that is when we speak about the God man, we speak about Jesus Christ himself. Inevitably, somebody asks, well, what does it mean when Paul says that God, or through Jesus Christ, emptied himself in coming to walk among the earth? What does that mean? Of course, throughout church history, there have been many times to explain this divinity of Christ and the humanity of Christ, and there have been many different formulations. Some of them have strayed from biblical testimony, either undermining the humanity or the divinity of Christ, or fusing the two natures together in compositions that once again end in error. And so those errors are sometimes referred to as heresy because they misrepresent the person who is Jesus Christ. And that unavoidably impacts our understanding of God, almost going back to your denial to begin with. And that leads to confusing or even denying a corollary of important Christian doctrines. So tonight, we're talking about this idea of kenosis. We're using the, the Greek term, and we're pulling that explicitly from Philippians chapter two. So let me start by reading Philippians two, one through 11 as really the precursor or setting the context for a conversation. Are you cool with that? Yeah, let's do it. I mean, you can't say no, because I just asked you if I can read the Bible. Yeah. On a reformed I mean, podcast. that's true. Yeah. Let's it's do pure it. setup it on is. my part. So this is Philippians two, one through 11. And then would you start us off on kind of like setting the tone for this conversation? Are you cool with that? Yeah. All right. So here's uh, Philippians 2, 1 through 11. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each one of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name 
So at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this is such a this is such a significant, important passage too, um, because a lot of times people who are starting to become Christians sort of have this idea that like Jesus is sort of running around in a in a in a man suit. And he, he's still God. Uh, and, and like, he just sort of appears to be human. And this passage totally like knocks that out of orbit. Right. And so it's, this is a really important passage. And unfortunately throughout the history of the church, this is one of those passages that gets just abused and twisted and, and and torn out of, out of context and, and twisted out of shape. So I'm glad that we're talking about this tonight because this is one of those seminal passages where if you're trying to do evangelism to sort of like steal less's new shtick, if you're trying to do evangelism and you're talking to somebody who either has is comes from a Christian background and has sort of that false uh, image of who God is, of who Christ is, or if you're talking to someone who's coming out of like Jehovah's Witnesses or Mormonism or Islam, a lot of times this is a verse that they kind of point to to try to undercut what you already believe about Jesus. And if you're not equipped for that, then a lot of times it sort of leaves you on like back on your feet and you're kind of in def- defense mode. So I'm glad we're talking about it to kind of go through and explain what does this actually mean and how how does it actually drive the gospel forward? Because the the fact that Jesus emptied himself and we'll we'll get to what that means, but the fact that he emptied himself is central to the Christian gospel. Right. If you don't have this passage, if you don't have Christ emptying himself, whatever that means, and we'll talk about that, then you don't you don't have Christianity, you don't have the gospel, you don't have salvation, you don't have redemption, you don't have anything. Because if we don't have a genuine, true human dying in the place of and on behalf of genuine, true humans, then you don't actually have salvation the way the Bible describes. And so in this passage, I'm glad you read the whole thing, because a lot of times when people read this or when they go to this, they sort of start with like verse five. Right. Right. They start with verse five and they sort of chunk that off. But the whole point of this passage is... To, to basically say to the Philippian believers, you should do this thing, right? If, if there's any encouragement in Christ, you should be unified. You should show humility. And here's an example of it, right? And so, so you can't divorce the fact that Paul is setting forth Christ and the humiliation of the incarnation as the example for the Philippian believers. You can't divorce those two things. And the first thing to remember in this passage, and when we're getting at what it means to empty, is this is something that Paul in some sense, expected the Philippian believers to be able to do, right? Yes. So when we talk about emptying, and there's a heresy called the kenotic heresy, and it comes from this word kenosis, the idea being that Christ actually divested himself of his divine nature and became less than divine. Well, that makes no sense in light of what Paul is talking about, because there's no way that we can divest ourselves of our human nature, in order to become less than human. And even if we were able to, that doesn't connect in any way with what Paul is encouraging or is commanding his, his readers to do. He's not saying become less than human. He's saying express your humanity by expressing humility. And so the incarnation is paralleled to that in a way that sort of implies that what Jesus did is in a sense something we can do in an analogous fashion. Right. That So that's really well, man. First of all, you kind of stole the kenosis heresy from me because I was about to bring that up next. So, 
but that was well done in terms of segue. Here's, here's what I'm thinking about in terms of this. And I, I think it might be helpful for people to hear that this is not something that's entirely outmooted, that this right. kind of understanding or lack of understanding is still going on. It's still present. Right now, I'm working on a certification. It's in finance, but it, revolves, it involves a test. I'm taking lots of practice questions. And the thing that's super annoying about these practice questions is there's only three potential answers. So of course, it, it, you would think that'd be great because you have a 33% chance of getting anyone right on any given occasion. But the problem is a lot of times the answers get tricky because they give you half truths and you have to try to sort through what is really fully true and what really only sounds like it's true because it's right. partially related. And I see this all the time. There is this modern heresy involving kenosis, and there are variations within that view from Jesus ceasing to be God while on earth to Jesus laying aside certain divine attributes, in particular, the fact of his omnipotence or omniscience. So to put it simply, part of the question we're asking is, was the Lord Jesus on earth in any way less than fully God? Right. And there are lots of churches that are teaching something that's, I would say, like antithetical, perhaps heretical but it's really hard to distinguish just like looking at a multiple choice question in which one of the answers is only partially true. For example, writing for Charisma Magazine, Bill Johnson, who is the pastor of Bethel Church Reading, here's what he writes, and this is a quote. Quote, while Jesus is eternally God, he emptied himself of his divine powers and became a man. See Philippians 2.7. It's vital to note that he did all his miracles as a man, not as God. If he did them as God, I would still be impressed. But because he did them as a man yielded to God, I am now unsatisfied with my life, being compelled to follow the example he has given us. Jesus is the only model for us to follow, end quote. Now, there's part of that. There's even some of that that you might think, what's the issue? It seems like he's appropriately discerning between the hypostatic union here. Right. But according to Bill Johnson, we should expect to see and even to do miracles because Jesus did so and he performed his miracles, not as God, but as a man. So apparently if Jesus had performed miracles as God, we shouldn't expect miracles by Christians or we should expect miracles by Christians today. That's problematic. And so right. like, I think what you're getting at is like, we actually need to properly understand this because there is teaching around this. That's not just like purely like theological with respect to like sitting in your armchair and like pontificating about like ephemeral or abstract ideas. But this is actually influencing how we understand Christianity, what our role is as children of God. Right. So like, have you seen like some of Bill Johnson's stuff on this or like are familiar yeah. with oh, it yeah. generally? Yeah, yeah. It's, it's wild, right? Yeah. And, and you know, it, the, the, the difficult of this, this, uh, the difficulty of this topic is that people like Bill Johnson are saying things where the words they say are not actually wrong, but what they mean right. by them are. Yes. And so if you go back in our back catalog, there's an episode we did. I actually don't know what the episode is titled anymore. I think I've changed the name of it, but it was originally called Jesus is not a superhero. I tried and to find this and I couldn't. Yeah. The, the <laughs> idea behind this episode is that Jesus is not, uh, you know, he's not Peter Parker pretending to be uh, not Spider-Man. You know, there's all sorts of, uh, almost a, it's almost a foregone conclusion in any comic book uh, movie or any comic book uh, situation where someone has a secret identity. They have a situation they get into 
where their powers are going to be exposed and so they have to pretend not to have them. So this might be, uh, you know, one of Spider-Man's powers is he has these insane reflexes. And so this might be someone throws a punch at him and he sees it coming. He easily could dodge it. But Peter Parker doesn't have enough reflexes to dodge it. So he lets himself right. get punched in the face. Right. And even more than that, he uh, he has to pretend to get knocked back and act injured because otherwise everybody's going to know that he should be injured, but he's not when the football player punches him. He's not injured. That's not what we're talking about with Jesus. Right. He didn't pretend to die on the cross. He didn't. Right. He didn't. I mean, in one sense, he let them kill him, but he, he they actually killed him. Right. It wasn't it wasn't like a pretend situation. On the other hand, we also are on record as saying all of the miracles, or at the very least, most of the miracles that Christ does that we see in the Gospels are actually Christ acting according to man, according to humanity in the power of the Holy Spirit. And right. it's interesting. I actually um, I actually emailed Mark Jones because he, he made this statement and he cited Owen. It's all coming full circle here. Uh, he cited Owen, who basically makes the same point, that everything that Jesus does as the God-man, as the incarnate Christ, he does according to humanity. And the things that he does that are superior or beyond what a normal human could do, he does by the power of the Holy Spirit, not sure. by tapping into his own divine nature. Now, right. we could get into like the inseparable of operations of the Trinity and, and everything the Holy Spirit does, the Son's also doing. But, but as far as the revelation we have and the accommodated language we have, I think it's, it's in Acts 2. I don't remember the exact verse, but Peter says, and it's amazing to me when people say that, like, well, the apostles in, you know, in Acts didn't have a fully developed Christology. They still had to work it out. Um, Peter says that they crucified a man whom God did miraculous works through to attest to him. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean he's referring to every single miraculous act, but Peter himself is saying, in a sense... It wasn't Jesus, the man who did these. It was God who did these miracles through right. Jesus, the man. And so it's important for us to recognize that kenosis is not as much as it's not the divesting of uh, divine attributes. It is the divesting of divine prerogatives to exercise certain attributes or to exercise yes. certain yes. prerogatives. Right. So so it's not as though Christ um, you know, sometimes people will say, well, like, well, Christ chose not to know certain things. Well, that's kind of a nonsense thing to say, because you have to know something in order to know that you know it in order to choose not to know it. But then you don't know it. So you couldn't have chosen not to know it because you didn't know what you couldn't know. Right? right. You end up in this weird circle where you have to have knowledge before you can choose not to have that knowledge. Well, but then you had that knowledge. But instead, right. <laughs> if we understand the hypostatic union correctly, there never was a time when Christ had the knowledge that he says in the Gospels he doesn't have. Right. Even now there are. And Mark, the, I wouldn't even say this because I'm sure we would get hate mail. You can send your hate mail straight to Mark Jones. Just go listen to his episode on Les's show. He says, and I agree with him, there are actually probably things that even now in heaven, the father still has not revealed to Christ according to humanity. Right. So when we look at what it means here, when we look at what kenosis means, it is not a change in the divine nature. It can't be because that's a nonsense statement. Right. That's like exactly. talking about a square. Exactly. Circle. The divine nature cannot be changed. So to even even articulate or postulate a change in the divine nature is already to be 
in a different religion entirely. You're no longer even a Christian anymore. Not to say people who are mistaken in this area and don't understand that aren't Christians, but you're no longer talking about Christianity if you talk about a divine nature that can change. Right. I want to say, how dare you, sir? <laughs> you keep stealing all the things that I want to say. I thought I had this like really good explanation using the two P words because I was going to talk about prerogative, not person. That sometimes people get caught up in the person and they try to as associate the kenosis with the person when it's really about prerogative. It also strikes me that maybe we should just define that, just define that, define that real quick. <laughs> that prerogative, and I just looked it up on Merriam-Webster, is an exclusive or special right, power, or privilege, right. such as one belonging to an office or official body, one belonging to a person, group, or class of individuals, one possessed by a nation as an attribute of sovereignty. So in terms of like, we're not trying to be fancy with that. I think this is like the actual specific word that helps us to, to right. actually discern what's going on here. Because again, you stole a point I wanted to make, which was if God laid aside even one of his attributes, if that's what Paul means here, then the immutable undergoes a mutation and right. the infinite suddenly stops becoming infinite. So it would be the end of the universe, I guess, right? Like that would yeah. be like a massive, that sounds like a Marvel thing. Like that'd be a massive like unfolding <laughs> of things in epic way that would cause like just immeasurable destruction at the molecular level. So God cannot stop being God and still be God. So we can't talk properly of God laying aside his deity to take humanity upon himself. Right. And that's why Orthodox Christianity has always declared that Jesus was verus homos and verus deus, like truly man and truly God. Like we've talked about this I go against like the hundred percent, hundred percent. I just talk about truly and truly man, right. truly man, truly God. So when we get this idea of prerogative and not person, the context of Philippians two makes it very clear that when he emptied himself of what was not his deity, it's, it's not his divine attributes, but his prerogative, his glory and his privileges. Right. That in some ways is even more condescending, isn't it? Like yeah. I like what you said, this humility and this humiliation like humiliation is actually really uh, probably the best word, right? Because yeah. it's just downright degrading for the son of God to come and lay his prerogative aside. And he willingly cloaked his glory under the veil of, of this human nature that he took upon himself. It's not that the divine nature stops being divine or to become human in the transfiguration. For example, like in Matthew 17, we see that the invisible divine nature break through and become visible. And Jesus is transfigured with the eyes of his disciples. Yeah. But for the most part, Jesus concealed that glory. I mean, I think what Paul is saying in Philippians 2 is that we're to imitate a willingness to relinquish our own glory and our own privileges and prerogatives. And I like that that's where you kind of started us out with, because I think often what we miss in that passage is that what Paul says, have this mind, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Right. So it's, it's not just like, let me make a theological textbook here, but let me link together what is like a foundational theology with how you ought to behave. Yeah. And I, I think sometimes we just run past that at the extent of like, well, let's talk about kenosis. Let's talk about the emptying right. without understanding what does the emptying mean for how you and I behave with each other and how we understand God and how we understand each other. Yeah. And you know, this is also one of those things um, that I think we have to be careful, right? Because when we talk about Christ emptying himself of his prerogatives, right? Sometimes people will talk about how, you know, Christ left heaven. He left his throne behind, or he he um, he left the perfect blessedness of fellowship with the Father. And and 
when I hear that, it makes me bristle a little bit because at the same time that Christ was a babe in the manger, right? Dependent on his mother for everything. He was right. also still upholding the universe by the word of his power. <laughs> yeah, so crazy. in one sense, Christ didn't leave. He didn't lay down anything when he became incarnate. Right. But in another sense, and this is where, this is where it's important. This is the one thing that I will credit William Lane Craig to saying right about theology is the, and he probably, it's probably not unique to him. He probably got it from somewhere, but the first time I ever heard it was from William Lane Craig. The incarnation is not subtraction. It is addition. And so, although in, in our minds, it feels weird to add a limitation and consider that addition, that is what's going on is Christ without losing anything that was his adds the ability to not lay claim to anything that is his. And this is the paradox of the incarnation, right? The, The mystery of the incarnation. Christ does not, in one sense, does not sacrifice anything. He, he, he is still the sovereign of the universe. He still has every divine prerogative. He still knows all things in only the way God knows them. Uh, in, in this sense where his knowledge is, is part of his very being, um, to know, to know for God is to be for God. And so there's no separation in there because of what we affirm about divine simplicity. But at the same time, he took on a limited knowledge in a different mode of knowing. And so we have to understand this in order to make any sense of this passage, because uh, Christ still is and was and always will be fully God. And to be fully God is to have all of those divine prerogatives. But this is where it's key, is that what he took on is the form of a servant. He took on this, this uh, mode of existence in addition to the mode of existence he already had in which he was a true, genuine servant, no longer just the king, but also the servant. And the closest analogy that I can think of, do you remember the show Undercover Boss? I don't know if it's still going or not, but do you remember that show? Yeah, for sure. So so Undercover Boss was this show where typically it was the CEO, but someone very high up in a company would get on a disguise and he would go, he would do like the day-to-day work. Like if it was the CEO of Best Buy, he would go work in the warehouse for a while and then he would go out to the sales floor for a while. And the premise of the show is that this boss, the CEO, who normally you think of a CEO as like detached and above the fray, he doesn't understand what the line level employees are going through. He, he would come down or she would come down and act as though they were a line level employee and learn about what it's like to be a line level employee. The difference is at the end of the day, that CEO was still the CEO. If someone, if someone, and this actually happened on one episode where someone did something that was so egregious uh, in terms of behavioral conduct, it was so egregious. He had to sort of reveal himself as a CEO and fire that person on the spot. Right. So he never lost and never really gave up his prerogatives as CEO. Something more close to what we'd be talking about would be if the CEO actually came down. He never stopped being the CEO, but he actually came down, was hired, interviewed and was hired for a job in his own company, worked his way back up through the ranks and then was was appointed as the CEO again. That's closer to what we have in the incarnation is for sure is the the eternally anointed son, right? The son prior to time in the eternity past in the covenant of redemption is anointed for a task. Now listen to our EFS episodes. If you're getting squirrely about me talking about eternal anointing, I don't affirm EFS. I don't affirm subordination in the Trinity, but the son is appointed for a task, which he willingly undergoes in the, uh, in eternity past before there was time he enters into his creation 
And then because of his righteousness and holiness, he merits the rewards to now be raised back up and granted the name that is above every name. Right. Amen. So he's restored to his rightful place as now the human ruler of all creation. He already was and never stopped being the divine, the divine ruler of all creation, but he had to empty himself of that status, at least outwardly, and then earn it again in order to rightfully claim it again. That's what we're talking about when we talk about kenosis. It's not that he ever stopped being God or stopped being the sovereign of the universe or stopped being omnipotent or omniscient or anything else that it means to be God. But what he did is he took on this status, the lowest status as, as a human. Not, and, and this is something that I think the Westminster Shorter Catechism says uh, really well. I'm going to blow the, the actual wording. But it says he, he became man and it says, uh, and that in a low condition. So he wasn't born into a royal family. He wasn't born into wealth. He was born into poverty to an unwed Jewish mother who lived, who was born, you know, he was born in a stable or in, in the guest room, depending on how you want to translate that section. And because of his obedience, because of his utter total obedience and dependence on the Holy Spirit, he rose back up and was exalted to a station above all names. That's what we're talking about when we talk about kenosis. Yeah, that's well said. Let me, I mean, as we kind of, I guess we have to close this out because otherwise I could go for like another four hours. Do you have anything yeah. else to do? No, no, let's go. Okay, let's do it. I'll fix but, it in uh, post. Don't worry. Let me, let me <laughs> quote from something you said. Uh, made me look up this particular uh, text. This is from the great pastor and theologian, Shai Lin. Let me read something. He says, <laughs> yeah, let's take it back to the foundation. Jesus Christ's impact and his salvation. I'm talking about Calvary where his blood was lost. I'm talking the reality of the rugged cross. I'm talking about death, burial, and resurrection. I'm talking about reconciliation and election. Yeah, I'm repetitive because we're slow learners. This is the truth music. I'm a sojourner reporting to you live from the wilderness. We strive on this pilgrimage alive because his building us tribes in the villages revive us and fill us with eyes diligent for our revival who pillages because he prowls around like a roaring lion because he's surely dying before the Lord of Zion defeat. One was the cross soon comes another loss. Trust in Jesus, the ultimate undercover boss. Nice. All right. Now, there beatbox. You go. now do some beatbox for me, Jesse. Oh man. I really wish I could. That would be embarrassing for <laughs> both of us, but <laughs> that's, all I just I love that you reference this idea of the, the undercover boss, because I yeah. think you're right on about that. Like, I think that that's the essence of what Paul's getting at here. Like long before that, that show was actually something. And because I can't say anything better than what others have written. Let me quote three people in particular all of these, which I know that you love and I love them as well. And because I know you're reading some of this, I got to start with Bavink because oh, man. yeah, he's super awesome. Here's what he said about the Kenosis. He said, quote, he laid aside the divine majesty and glory in which he existed before the incarnation or rather concealed it behind the form of a servant in which he went about on earth. End quote. That's from his reform diagnostics. Or if you're looking for a little JC and by that, I mean, John Calvin quote, John Calvin says Christ indeed could not divest himself of Godhead, but he kept it concealed for a time that it might not be seen under the weakness of the flesh. Hence he laid aside his glory in the view of men, not by lessening it, but by concealing it. 
uh, end quote. And then last from Stephen Charnock, we got to go with a little Puritan action, a little P action. He writes, quote, what a wonder that two natures infinitely distant should be more intimately united than anything in the world, that the same person should have both a glory and a grief, an infinite joy in the deity and an inexpressible sorrow in the humanity. That God upon a throne should be an infant in a cradle, the thundering creator be weeping babe and a suffering man. The incarnation astonishes men upon the earth and angels in heaven, end quote. That's from existence and attributes of God in his own works. So I just have like blown away by this truth. I was thinking this week about, uh, you know, the passage in which David talks about being able to like leap over a wall. And I have to go back to something that I've coined. I, I probably, I didn't coin this myself. I, I believe the Kool-Aid man did. But this idea that like, I, I feel like maybe the Holy Spirit, if it's possible for me to say this, missed an opportunity and should have said like, for, for David to have said, with my God, I can run through a wall. Oh man. Oh man. <laughs> it was such a big setup. But like, when I read this stuff, when I have this conversation with you, I just think, what, what Moses said in Genesis, what God is like our God? Yeah. Honestly, what God is like our God that sends his own son to do this very thing, to conceal in some way his prerogative so that he might be like us and in becoming like us, be forever like us, and then to have a special ministry as prophet, priest, and king right now, even within earshot of our own voices in the presence of God the Father for a unique ministry that is ongoing. What God is like our God? Yeah. Yeah, just just not to be uh, shown up with the quotes. I I was actually reading this before you told me what the topic that you wanted to talk about today was. Okay, and this is also from Bavink, uh, and it's from the Wonderful Works of God. And this, in the, at least in the Kindle edition, is on page three seventy eight. And he says he can be called that in this other meeting. He was the mediator of creation; would also be the mediator of the recreation. And then he says, so good and would bring it about entirely by his passion and death. That is why he is called the servant of the Lord, the elect of God as mediator. He is subordinate to the father and obedient to him. He has commanded and a work. He has a command and a work to fulfill, which the father has assigned to him. And as the reward for his finished work, he receives his own glory, the salvation of his people and the highest might in heaven on earth. So, so just to break that down, right. Even before the incarnation, right. So, so this is something that will just blow your mind and maybe I'll just drop this out there. Like I did about scotch with grapes last week. And we'll talk about that sometime, (laughs) but just to throw this out there, the humiliation of Christ actually starts before the incarnation in a sense. Yeah. Right. And, And so this is, this is where it's funny because when we, the, the EFS controversy first broke, it was all about eternal versus temporal. I actually don't think those are the categories we need to talk about. What we need to talk about is ad intra, which is operations that are internal to the Trinity. These are necessary operations that could not be otherwise because they're fundamental to the very being of God, right? And then there's ad extra operations. Those are the things that God does oriented outside of the Trinity. The, the appointment of the Son as mediator is an ad extra operation that happens pretemporally. So it's eternal, right? right? There never was, just, just as we would deny against Arianism that there never was when Christ was not, 
we also would deny against uh, like certain forms of Socinianism, there never was when Christ was not the mediator of his people. Right now, now there's all sorts of complicated metaphysics. Go ahead and check out James Dolezal, All That's in God, to explain how that is not an, af- an affirmation of eternal justification. But there never was a time when God was not for his people in right. Christ Jesus, right? So Paul says that we were elected in him, Christ before in him before the foundation of the world. Christ began, if that's even not even the right word, but Christ's emptying of himself, the son's emptying of himself, which is just another way to talk about the son's humiliation. It actually began in eternity past when the persons of the Trinity agreed that the son would become incarnate in order to bring about the redemption of his people. Right. Right. The pactum salutis is key to this. And so if you, if you don't own wonderful works of God by Bovink, go buy it just for the chapter called the covenant of grace. It it is totally worth the cost of the book just to read that one chapter, because everything we're talking about in terms of kenosis, it is not the case that Christ had some sort of metaphysical distinction uh, from the father in terms of nature that that happened or, or was eternal prior to time, right? That's not the case. That's not what I'm saying. But this idea that the prerogative of the son to be the eternal sovereign, this idea did not happen at a moment in time in Bethlehem 2000 some years ago. Right. Right. This idea that the son would empty himself of his divine prerogatives, even even in a sense, in eternity past, he began to empty himself of his divine prerogatives. I'm sounding a little bit like Karl Barth here and it's kind of freaking me out. But even (laughs) in eternity past, this idea that he would begin to empty himself of his divine prerogatives sort of started when he agreed to take on. Yeah. Agree, you know, obviously we're speaking in anthropomorphism. So please send your hate mail straight to the garbage can. But. It's important for us to recognize this because if we recognize that kenosis is not the divestment of divine nature, if we recognize that this concept of kenosis actually finds its roots in the eternal counsel of God before there was ever sin, before there was ever anything in the eternal wise counsel and of redemption in eternity past, then this idea that it is somehow God becoming less than God is so small. It's so small compared to what the reality of what Christ did for us is. And that almost sounds blasphemous because what bigger sacrifice could there be to divest oneself of his divine nature if that was even a coherent idea, which it's not? Right. Well, what it would be is to not divest oneself of the divine nature, but still to suffer the ignominious death and sacrifice that Christ did. Because Bill Johnson and Todd White and and people in that line of thought who want to say that, well, Jesus wasn't really God anymore. He, he became man and, and wasn't really God anymore. He wasn't omniscient. He wasn't omnipotent, right? What they're saying is that God didn't die for our sins. Some guy right. who used to be God died right. for our sins. Exactly. But what the Christian gospel says is God died for your sins. Amen. The ruler of the universe became almost nothing for your sake. And Amen. that is the glorious good news of Jesus Christ, is that he did what needed to be done, which only he could do because he was God, but yet took on the form of the servant. That is that is gospel, and that will preach. Man, that was tasty. Did you, did you taste that? That was delicious. It did. I did. It was like a good bacon and eggs <laughs> breakfast. 
Well, that's, I can't think of a better way to end this conversation. So I think that I hope people will continue to kind of just chew. I mean, we're, we're horribly into like <laughs> puns about consumption of food, but chew on that a bit. And because we've got some exciting things coming up besides the gospel that you just heard there, there's, there's some other exciting things that we're working on. One of those is we do have at some point, we're gonna have a new book club coming yes. up and we, we define that as we're going to get a book, all of us together. We're going to read that book. We're going to talk about it. And so we're hoping people will get involved in that. That's coming. We're not ready to announce it yet, but it's coming, right? Yes, it is coming. I'm excited about it too. And the second thing is that, of course, we're always wanting to hear from listeners, brothers and sisters who have questions or observations or comments. And of course, the best way to do that is to leave us a voicemail. You know you have a phone. We know you can dial it. So call us at 607 607- Four 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 two seven six seven. Burrows. That's the. <laughs> I was like with authority that time. Bros. Bobby Newport. Six zero seven four 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 two seven six seven. Leave us a voice about the Parks and Rex references tonight. We are. That's that's basically we're in that vibe this time. So leave us a voicemail with your questions. Again, we we always want to do a question cast, and we were. Really pleased to be able to do that with the communion episode. So we want to get some more voicemails in the hopper so that we can talk about you. All right. So what say you, Tony? Have we officially closed this episode of the Reformed Brotherhood? I do think we've officially closed this episode. And that means, Jesse, until next time, honor everyone. Love the Brotherhood. The son of man, 100% humanity. Yeah. The mind stretches to understand how can it be? You gotta see what he does. Becoming what he was, it will never ceasing to be what he was. Is your mind flipping? They got you tripping, me too. But the scripture is true. P. Philippians 2. By faith we believe this amazing Jesus who made Uranus and Venus became a fetus. It's such a secret that few, if anybody, knew it. Months later, he's covered in amniotic fluid. The subject of the gospels, praise of apostles, armed with eye sockets, armpits, and nostrils. Who is this Jesus? God clothing.